0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning. Um, Yeah, it's true uh, that the McMillans have uh, been a very important part of our journey for 35 years. 1987, so it was 36 years, I guess, right? And um, <clears throat> I I, um, I have probably a unique record here at Queen City, in as much as that, unless I miss my guess, I'm probably uh, the guest speaker that has made the most return visits. Now I don't know what that really means. Uh, you would assume that maybe that there's a degree of popularity. I'm not sure that 's the reason, maybe they keep having me back to see if i 'll eventually get it right i don 't know. Uh, Robin told me a week or so ago, um, and this is one of the things i 've always loved about Robin is you don 't ever have to wonder what he 's thinking Have you found that to be true um, and so we 're talking on the phone and uh, you know i 've been trying to keep up with uh, his uh, recovery. And uh, he said, Randall, I mean, he always does it in that boisterous way. Randall, he said, we love you, man. He said, don't understand you, but I love you. (laughs) And I thought, okay. Um, If you will allow me, before I get started here this morning, because this has nothing to do with what I really came to talk to you about, but as I was thinking about a shared history uh, that we've had and there are not that many people that I know over the years that I've been in, in pace with and on the journey for that length of time. And uh, as far as I know, that this um, I guess it's a poem of sorts. Uh, it came to me. It's it's uh, the author is unknown. And maybe you've heard it. It says a reason, a season, or a lifetime. Anybody ever heard that one? You haven't. Okay. Uh, it goes like this. It says, people come into your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And when you figure out which one it is, you will know what to do for each person. When someone is in your life for a reason, it is usually to meet a need you have expressed. They have come to assist you through a difficulty, to provide you with guidance and support, to aid you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They May seem like a godsend, and they are. Then there are, the, uh, they are there for a reason. You need them to be. Then without any wrongdoing on your part or at an inconvenient time, this person will say or do something to bring the relationship to the end. Sometimes they die. Sometimes they walk away. Sometimes they act up and force you to take a stand. What we must realize is that our need has been met, our desire fulfilled, their work is done. The prayer you sent up has been answered and now it's time to move on. Then there are people that come into your life for a season because your turn has come to share and grow and learn. And they bring you an experience of peace and make you laugh. They may teach you something you've never done how to do something you've never done, they usually give you an unbelievable amount of joy. Believe it, it's real, but only for a season. Lifetime relationships teach you that lifetime lesson, teach you lifetime lessons, things you must build upon in order to have a solid emotional foundation. Your job is to accept the lesson, love the person, and put what you have learned to use in all the relationships and areas of your life It is said that love is blind, but friendship is clairvoyant. And uh, I I, I don't want that just to be flat, but uh, it just was resonating in me as I was thinking about the years that we have walked together. Uh, This morning, I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to Luke's Gospel in chapter 5. Luke's Gospel in chapter 5. And I'm going to read an account that I'm sure that many of you are very familiar with if you've spent any time at all in the Gospels. Uh, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake, just, just it, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, so much so that their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinner. I'm a sinner, O Lord, for he and all who were with him, were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid from now on. You're going to be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. I want to talk to you about being flawed but still following. And that will make far more sense as we begin to unpack this, this text. This is not the first encounter that Peter has had with Jesus. Uh, he had met Peter prior to this. When he was at dinner at his home. Actually with his mother-in-law. And his mother-in-law was sick. And you probably remember Jesus healed him. So this is not the first time... That Peter has encountered Jesus, but there is something that is going to happen that is truly, if you allow me, a watershed moment that takes place in Peter's life, that is going to bring an alteration uh, to his destiny that was something that he had no clue was going to involve. Um... There are many ways in which God breaks into our lives uh, in an unpredictable way. He comes in an unexpected way to places that we would never expect to see him. And this particular scenario is significant because Jesus just keeps showing up in Peter's life. He relentlessly is in pursuit of him in the same way that he is relentlessly in pursuit of us. Now, I don't know whether you noticed, but there are two boats that are there. And Jesus chooses one of the two. And I think sometimes what that should say to us is that sometimes it seems that God is picking other people when we are desperate for him to pick us, and he doesn't. And we don't realize that that's an opportunity. It's a moment for us to grow. When God is, and I've seen this so many times in my own life, and I'm not sure that I should admit this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I have wrestled with jealousy of what God is doing in other individuals' lives. I've actually, this is the, what I've played out in my head. Um, I've really got more under the hood than that person does. Now, isn't that self-absorbed? But I have had those kinds of thoughts. I mean, why is God using that individual? They're certainly not as sharp as I am. Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. I, I know you probably thought that yourself. But this is an opportunity, isn't it, for those who are watching what's getting ready to happen with Peter in this miraculous catch of fish. It's an opportunity for them to grow. So what they don't know, though, that in a matter of minutes is that he is going to draw the rest of them into the story. The other boat is going to be engaged and involved. So he sends them out into the deep. And uh, obviously, he did send them out into deeper water. But metaphorically speaking, I think it's true that God is always calling us into deeper experiences. Maybe that's what you're sensing right now. There's at least two different kinds of depth that I can see from this text. And the first one is the depth of being called into mystery. Uh, Mystery is something that many of us, an ambiguity that, you know, very few of us deal with very well. Uh, We don't understand that for the most part... uh, The Christian culture has reduced faith to needing to know, even demanding to know. When in reality, that's the first sin that was committed by human beings, Adam and Eve in the garden. They demanded to know certain things. We're not comfortable with mystery, are we? We're not comfortable with not knowing. But this is really what he's calling them into, into a deeper place of mystery. You sometimes probably don't feel very important, uh, much less being indispensable. And the feeling of being unimportant intensifies when you're surrounded by people that are larger than life. I know that feeling, and I'm sure you do as well. You know, the attention getters. And they make you feel, pardon the pun, they make you feel like a very small fish in a very big pond. But I think sometimes we need to be reminded that my life and your life is not about us. It's not about us. I know that that seems profoundly simple. But it's something that we need to be regularly reminded of, that our life is not about us. And we do have a part to play in a much larger story, but most of the time we are completely unaware of it. Uh, There's a great thinker that uh, helps us and gives us perspective in this manner. His name is Pierce. Uh, And he said that when we gain perspective on who we are and where we are, we have to first of all understand that there is your story, which is encompassed by our story, which is encompassed by an even bigger story, which is the story. Uh, I'm sure that the other men in the other boat were watching what is happening, and especially the exchange that takes place between Jesus and Peter, and uh, they're envious of what is happening there. and They wonder, why didn't he pick me? The other depth, I think, that we're called into, is, which is one that you hear very little about, especially in contemporary Christianity, is the depth of understanding the purpose of suffering. Now, I'm sure that at this very moment, if you think about the people that you have great admiration for, great men and women of God, you also recognize about them that not only were they greatly used by God, but they suffered greatly as well. I'm hard pressed to think of anyone that has not gone through that. What makes us think that we are going to be immune to that? So he's calling us into the depth of understanding the purpose of suffering. It is not that God is, uh, you know, sadistic or that God has the intention of making things go bad, but he understands the human condition. So he's calling us as he was calling them into the depths of that, to understand the real purpose for rejection, betrayal, misunderstanding. Um, Now for 45 years, I'm coming up on 45 years of being in ministry, and I have been tolerated far more than I have been celebrated. I'm all too familiar with rejection and misunderstanding and betrayal. And this is what this is what he's calling all, all of us into the the depths of all of that. But I assure you that if you can endure the intensities in those depths if you can endure them you endure them by trusting his intentions. You can endure any intensity, if you trust his ultimate intentions. Well, faith, again, has just been reduced down to us demanding to know, feeling that we need to know. I think it was possibly uh, one of the great early church fathers, uh, it, it slips me now as to which one it was, that said that when you reach the end of what you know, there is where you find God. Uh, that doesn't set very well with people, but I think it's true. Demanding to know, again, was that temptation that Adam and Eve experienced, and it's something that I think that we have congenitively uh, inherited from them. Uh, I recently discovered the work of Nicholas of Cusa, a, a German theologian, who talks about learned ignorance. Are you interested in hearing about that? Learned ignorance. Uh, He said that there are people that don't know that they don't know. And then there are people who don't know but think they know. Then there are people who don't know but think they ought to know. But finally, there are people who have embraced that not knowing is really just a part of the human condition. It's just a part of the human condition. Now, I want you to look back if you te- at the text, if you have your Bible still open, and notice that there is such a volume of fish that it's rending their nets. It's tearing their nets apart. When they managed to heave it over the bow of the boat, now Peter is standing knee deep in flopping fish. And in that context, as he's standing knee deep in flopping fish, Jesus is about to ask Peter to walk away from the miracle that he just performed. That's very telling to me. Very telling. And it's very convicting as well to me. Because what it's going to do is to test Peter and see if he is going to follow him, not just for the miraculous provision, or is he going to follow him for who he is? You probably remember in John's gospel that Jesus turned around on one occasion after the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, and he said, Are you following me for that and that alone? Now, I'm I'm going to try to make this as painful, I mean painless as possible, uh, but um, isn't it true that we we have these encounters with the Lord when we're tested as to what our motives are what our intentions are oh I'm following you yeah, or, or, well are you following him because of what he's done for you or what he will do for you the question is would we follow him if he never answered another prayer Would we follow him if suddenly the heavens are mute to us? Would we follow him if he didn't come through as he has come through in the past and assisted you in getting out of your financial dilemma? Would you follow him? This is really what Peter is being encountered with. He's being asked to walk away Not only from what Jesus just did, but he's going to have to walk away from a family business that probably went several generations back. This is what following Jesus looks like. I think you guys have been talking about that this summer, haven't you? About following Jesus. There comes a point when he pushes us so far out into deep water where we have to learn to follow him, not what he does for us, but for who he is. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Thank you. I see that hand just as you are. Hmm. Peter had absolutely no idea whatsoever in this moment how much things were going to change. You know, I grew up hearing this cautionary saying. Maybe some of you have heard it as well. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Make you stay longer than you want to stay. And make you pay more than you want to pay. Anybody recognize that? Oh, yeah, I heard that, you know, especially in my legalistic upbringing. Sin will take you further than you want to go and make you stay longer than you want to stay and make you pay more than you intended to pay. But you know what? I have discovered that that same thing is true about my journey of faith. It's made me go further than I wanted to go and stay longer than I wanted to stay and it certainly cost me more than I thought it would cost me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times whether I have said it audibly or I'm rehearsing it in my head. I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) If you haven't gotten there, you will. (laughs) I like what one great sage said in summing up the entirety of life when he said that life is hard. You're not as important as you think you are. Your life is not about you. You are not in control even though you think you are and you're going to die. How encouraging is that? Again, most of us see how God powerfully uses other people and we assume that we are insignificant and we are certain that they will be remembered. I hope you're listening to this. We, we assume that they will be remembered, but everything that we have ever done is forgettable. The older I get, the more I ponder those thoughts. What have I done that will really last? What will endure? What will my legacy be? And I'm asking all the wrong questions when I'm asking those questions. I just need to be reminded that I'm still following him. That's all that matters. Do I have any clear idea now after 45 years than I did when I started? No. No. I've learned to live with ambiguity. I've learned to live with mystery. You know, when God calls us, he is asking us if you will work with him even if your work seems seems to be meaningless. You know, how many times have you prayed this? I certainly have. God... I wanna do great things for you. Has anybody ever prayed that? I just wanna do great things for you. Can I expose something about that prayer? Really what you're asking for is not to follow him but is to do great things. This often is our ego that wants to do great things or how many times have you prayed this one? And uh, I'm not trying to be hard on you. I used to pray the same way until I realized that it was a really unhealthy way of praying. God, just use me. I just want you to use me. The truth is, God doesn't use anybody. I mean, what kind of relationship would you have or how long would that relationship last if you were interacting with people that only needed you so that they could use you. God doesn't use people in that sense in order to accomplish certain projects. Some people think think in those terms that the only reason why he's called me is because he's got a project that he's got to get done and so he needs to use me. That's a really unhealthy way of praying as far as I'm concerned. It's been said some people will only love you as much as they can use you and their loyalty ends where, that, where the benefit stops. And I've met a few people like that. It's not about what he wants to get out of you. It's not about the project. It is not about, I mean, this worship this morning was some of the best worship I've experienced in a long time. In fact, I told this young lady that stood over here, that's one of the purest things I've heard in a long time. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about so many people that are involved in the worship culture or even people that are involved in the kind of work that I do. If they reached a point where they were no longer given that privilege, how would it influence their passion in following him? That's a hard question, but I think it's a valid one. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, and I enjoy what I'm doing. Again, I've been doing it for over four decades. But I want to think that if I walk off this platform this morning and I'm in my car on the way home, And the Lord says to me, oh, I know the gifts and the callings are without repentance. I know what the scripture says about that. But he says to me, I'm done with you doing that. And he may do that because he is not jealous of me, but he's certainly jealous for me. Isn't it true that most of us unwittingly, we think that we are our gift. This is especially true uh, with men and men, men and women in ministry they're in this delusion that they are their gift and I may not get this quite right but you'll you'll get the import of it if you are what you do then when you can't anymore does that mean that you're not see I think all this is wrapped up in what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be a radical follower of Jesus. Again, most people, they don't know who they are apart from what they do for God. And Peter, look back at the text again, he collapses at Jesus' feet. When he collapses at his feet, what does he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And this is really A common response that you see all the way through scripture. I mean, you see the insecurity, you, you see the vulnerability in men that have encounters with God. Isn't it true? Isaiah, when he has this spectacular vision of the glory of God in Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. In the midst of an unclean people. Peter, I mean, Peter does the same thing here. Paul does essentially the same thing. Uh, have you ever noticed how Paul is constantly self-deprecating? Saying I'm the least among the apostles. I'm a chief among sinners. And somehow I think that we assume that God needs us to think less of ourselves. And in reality, Jesus looked at him and he just said, listen, don't be afraid. Now, that's really important because Peter, when he talks about how sinful he is, he's probably rehearsing all of the egregious things that he had done up until this point, and he meets this holy man. But Peter has absolutely no clue whatsoever the failure that was in front of him. The failure that would come in his future. Peter is the one that will not only shock himself, but shock the other disciples when Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. And I, if we'd been there in that moment, I think that we'd have seen the shock in Peter's face, that it, that came out of his mouth. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Surely the other disciples, th- Looked at him and thought, where did that come from? But just a few verses later, maybe within an hour, Jesus is talking about going to the cross and Peter is trying to stand in his way and fulfilling his destiny. Jesus will call him Satan. I mean, this guy is bipolar on so many levels, isn't he? I mean, he is unpredictable. I mean, that doesn't even come close to describing this guy. He doesn't know himself, but he thinks he does, and he's just encountered the one that had always known him, and even knows his future, knows that he, uh, in his indignant, impetuous way, is going to wield a sword in the garden and sever Malchus's ear. He knows that he's going to make an effort to walk on water. He's going to do all these things. He knows he's going to deny him, not once, but three times. He knows all that about his future. Yet he still calls him to follow him. So he has absolutely no idea what he's saying when he says, I am a sinner. I love what Brennan Manning, uh, one of my favorite authors uh, says that I think is pertinent to this. He he's, tells about a time when he was praying. see if you relate to this, and he 's confessing to God about what a failure he was. And uh, he said that as he is confessing about what a miserable failure he was, that God responded to Manning and said this, You are much more of a failure than you realize.' And I expect more failure from you than you could ever expect from yourself. But I'm still calling you. Are you still with me this morning? You and I, all of us in this room, are incredibly flawed. Incredibly flawed. And you don't know. A year from now, two years from now, three years from now, What you're capable of doing, given the right circumstances. Come on, some of you ought to take a deep breath right there. Maybe a year, two, three years from now, you're going to wake up one day and find yourself in a state of mind, an emotional state where you're thinking to yourself, I don't even recognize myself. Again, we don't know how flawed we are. But Jesus knew how flawed Peter was going to be, and he still called him to follow him. Amen. I like the verse in Hebrews I was reading early this morning in Hebrews 2 uh, that says that he is not ashamed of his brothers and sisters. I mean, there are a lot of things that... I know that you don't know and no one will ever know about me that I consider to be something that he should be ashamed of me for. Much less what I'm capable of doing in the rest of my life. But he's not ashamed. He seems to be almost impervious to shame. When it comes to identifying with us. I mean, no matter what other people discover about you in the future and what you discover about yourself, there is absolutely nothing that is shocking and embarrassing to him. I think really, and this this sounds counterintuitive, but I think we grow more spiritually by getting it wrong than we do by getting it right Now, I know that that probably does not square with your theology, so I'm going to say it again. (laughs) I think we grow quite often more when we get it wrong than when we get it right. I was thinking this past week, and I think it was triggered by Meister Eckhart, another favorite author of mine. He said, that the immaturity, we mature as we are patient with the immaturity of other people. And I, you know, I, I have a little different iteration of it. I think that we mature as we are patient with our own immaturity as well as the immaturity of people around us. God knows Jesus demonstrated that, didn't he, with Peter, his patience with him. And, uh, you know, to find a place to land here, let me go to John 21. Many of you are familiar with this. In John 21, I, I won't read the entire text. But in John 21, this is one of the many resurrection appearances of Jesus to the disciples and um, starts out by saying that he revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way to Simon, Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples that were there. And uh, we won't take time to read the whole text, but does this, If you're familiar with it, does it not look strikingly familiar to you? Because this is where, possibly the same location where Peter had received his first call to follow Jesus. And Jesus returns, very possibly, to the exact same location, to the exact spot. The story comes full circle. And they have, again, they've been fishing all night, and they've caught nothing. Absolutely nothing. And Jesus repeats the same miracle. This time, the response of Peter is vastly different than it was three years prior. They look on the shoreline And they can see a man sitting by a fire, not knowing it was Jesus at first. This apparition, they thought. And he's cooking fish on a fire. You know, this is where we get this practice of Ash Wednesday that goes all the way back to where Peter denied the Lord by a fire. And so they see him, and he asks them, have you caught any fish? And he uses endearing language. He says, children. Look at it there, if you've turned over there. Children, do you have any fish? He knows the answer to that. He knows how ineffective they've been, how inadequate they are. But he asked them anyway. Children, have you caught any fish? And then what does he say? He says, cast the net on the right side, and it repeats the whole miracle all over again. That had been repeated three years before. I think Peter finally begins to see that following Jesus is not about really understanding himself, but knowing that he is understood by Jesus. I would like to think that I am relatively self aware. In fact, I work with people all the time in another business that I have where that is the main focus is to help them to come to a self-awareness. It's really something that is really rare these days. Very few people are really self-aware. But I think that it's impossible for us to be completely aware of ourselves until we make the goal of allowing him to know us as we are as we really are, not as we think we are, as we, as we appear to be. That's where self-awareness really comes from. He knows what has happened. He knows what's going to happen. And he still calls you to follow him. I mean, next time you get to the point, and maybe you've never said it audibly, but I certainly have said it a few times. More than I care to remember internally just depart from me Lord you made you made some good efforts with me you know there are a few high points but just you know I'm done I'm done like Peter you just need to hear him relentlessly saying I know you're flawed but just keep following me. It's just that simple. I know you're flawed, but just keep following, Father. I uh, I feel deeply this morning in every fiber of my being that this is not just something for a few for probably every person in this room that has a pulse that we all reach these places, Lord, where um, we're not sure whether we have the fortitude. We're just not sure whether we have enough in the tank uh, to continue. For every person in this room that has reached that point, they feel like they're running on fumes they, um, they haven't seen a miracle in a while and they don't realize that the reason why they haven't seen a miracle is because you will not allow them to become more attached to what you do than who you are. Lord, I repent for that. And I'm sure there are many others here this morning that need, need to repent for that same thing and to acknowledge, Lord, I'm sorry I followed you for what was in it for me. You know, we hear all of our lives the emphasis on the goodness of God, and sometimes that means, well, he's good when things are going well. He's good when things are clear. He's good when I've got definite, definitive direction. He's good, no, No, he's good even when that is not occurring. His goodness does not vacillate. His goodness, your goodness, does not change with the wind. For people right now that have gnawing questions, for people at this very moment that feel like an abject failure, you will never, ever depart from them, even though they have this inclination to depart from you. May we understand that we really don't give up on you as much as we give up on ourselves. We ask you, Lord, for a renewed grace. Anybody need that? Go ahead and stand. Go ahead and stand, everybody. We ask you for a renewed and fresh grace uh, to follow you with all of our flaws, with all of our ineptitude, with all of the things, Lord, that we know about ourselves that we wish we didn't know about ourselves. Because that's the reason why you chose us to begin with. And everything you are asking of us, oddly enough, you intend to give us. Isn't that strange? Everything he is asking of us, he intends to give us. So, Lord, we do. We follow you. Still flawed, but we follow you. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.
1: Mm. So good. Dream for a second. What does it look like for a church to no longer be driven by the conscious thought of our flaws? I was thinking as Randall was speaking, I some time ago took a personality quiz, and it usually means two things you're either trying to figure yourself out or three things, trying to figure yourself out or you're looking for what you're good at or what you're not good at. and one of the categories was agreeableness. it rates you, and the scale was one to a hundred, and mine came back under the uh, tab of my wife's laughing at me uh, of agreeableness, and my score was one out of a hundred. And immediately I disagreed. I thought, this is the worst test. And I'm verbalizing this. Carol's sitting there going over it with me. I'm like, it's the worst test. I disagree with that. That's not true at all. I'm agreeable all the time in a lot of ways. It's just not the ways this test sees me. And I see myself different than this test, so they don't know. Numbers don't define me. I'm the man of God. And, um... It's funny, though, how often self-awareness, as Randall was saying, how self-awareness becomes a stumbling block for us to follow Jesus. As if following him or his acceptance was ever based on us being well put together. We live so much under this illusion of seeing ourselves the way that he doesn't actually see us. Um, That I often dream about what does it look like for a church to actually just embrace and celebrate the flaws but really know what it means to follow Jesus regardless. And that's so much of the stories I think Randall was sharing this morning. It's like Peter was flawed, but he followed Jesus. And following Jesus does not mean... Um, and this is, really revolves around the concept of agreement. Agreement doesn't mean that we see all that he sees or know all that he knows. It means that I see him. And I know him enough know that it was never about the stuff we're following him for. It was just to follow him. Yeah, and that's where we can follow him through mystery. But um, how many you guys appreciate Randall this morning just by? Um, and I think it's worth saying, I, I thought as he was speaking as well, just the Robbins and the Randalls for the, the past several decades, the, the greatest measure of leadership we have in the church is those who just follow Jesus. Not those who are trying to be something, not those who are trying, they are something to us. But these get, these are the type of people who have constantly shown that, hey, we're just here to follow Him.
0: You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.